Okay. There you go, right there. One year I was preaching at Rekindle the Flame, and there's this little click, 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 click sound. And finally somebody said, your earrings are clicking against the thing. I said, why didn't somebody tell me before this? I took my earrings off and the clicking stopped. So, you know, I need help. I need help. <clears throat> okay, you have a handout tonight. And we're going to talk, um, again, Rick asked me in these last couple opportunities I had to teach at the Atlanta Bible Study to bring some of the things that we've done for years and years in Brazil that have just foundational tenets of the faith that are essential for, um, for growth, for spiritual growth and for discipleship. And, you know, there's three main areas solid doctrine includes. One is sin, one is righteousness, and one is judgment. And we'll get to that, the scripture in John 16 that talks about that tonight. So tonight we're going to talk about righteousness. Because depending on where you come from, what your experience has been, people have different ideas about righteousness and how it's attained and when it's attained and all of that. So I want to bring you a, just a basic 101 foundational understanding of righteousness according to the word. See, a lot of us have this idea, at least I did for years growing up, like someday I want to be righteous. Someday I wish to attain righteousness. But from the very beginning tonight, I want to submit to you that righteousness is where we begin in our Christian walk. It isn't where we hopefully end up someday. It's where we begin our Christian walk. From a position of righteousness, then we begin to deal with all of our sin and our problems and our need for healing. It's not the other way around. But I don't hear that much. I hear people working and working to say, someday I want to get righteous. So I don't care if you've been in the church for 30 years, you're even a leader, you still might be under that, under that impression or that concept that's just locked in your head. So I hope I can blow that apart for you tonight. <clears throat> um, so let's go to Romans 1, 16 and 17. I'm gonna we're gonna be doing quite a Bible drill tonight. Romans 1:16 says, "For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith." There's a number of things here. First of all, it says the gospel is power of God for salvation. It's power for others. Power for us to reach others for Jesus. What happens when someone enters into true salvation? They receive revelation of what God's righteousness is to them. And if this doesn't happen, you can be saved but you're still hung up on you. You know, you can get fire insurance. You can be saved, but you're still hung up on yourself. So that means you're not free. You're no good to others to have the power for salvation to work through you. Second thing that's said in here is that this is a righteousness that is revealed by the Holy Spirit. 
because we have ideas of righteousness. We're taught ideas about righteousness. We need God's definition. We need him to reveal what righteousness is. And the third thing I see here is that it's only appropriated by faith. It takes faith to hold on to what God says is true of you, not what you think is true of you. Like John, when he gave his word tonight, I thought, I don't need to preach tonight. That was so powerful, John, out of Deuteronomy. But it takes faith, a lot of faith, to hold on to what God says about you is true, not what your parents said about you or what your teachers said or what a spouse said or a peer said. It's what God says about you is true. So if we're going to talk about righteousness tonight, I think a good place to start is to define it, to define it the way it's defined in Scripture. Um, If we look it up in the lexicon, which is what I like to do, I like to look up Hebrew and Greek words and find out what they really mean as opposed to our church jargon, our church ease, where we may have kind of redefined things in certain ways. And... um, this is my best effort at speaking a Greek word. The word is uh, 1343 in the lexicon, if you want to look it up, and it's dikeosuni, dikeosuni. And it, the definition of that word is the righteousness that belongs to God or God-like righteousness. What does that tell us? There's only one standard of righteousness, and it's God himself. He is the definition of righteousness. If you want to know what righteousness is, it's God. And he's the only one who possesses it. He's the only one who possesses righteousness. So if we're told here that in it the righteousness of God is revealed and by faith we can apprehend it, man, that just kind of gives us a mind-boggling thing because can how can you have a God-like righteousness let alone, can you even comprehend how righteous God is? Can you even wrap your brain around that? What does God's righteousness look like? It's just beyond us, isn't it? This is why I think when Jesus was walking along one day and the man came up to him and he said, Good master, what must I do to inherit eternal, eternal life? And Jesus turned to him and he said, Why do you call me good? Because he he knew this guy was wanting to be good and gooder and gooder and gooder until he maybe became good enough, which is how we think. So he said, why are you calling me good? Um, I'm, I'm not just good. I'm righteous. And you don't even understand what that is. We don't understand it at all until the Holy Spirit reveals it to us. And other things Jesus said about these kinds of things was he didn't come to lower the standard. He didn't come to say, well, you're trying hard. You're doing pretty well, so I'll I'll call you righteous. (laughs) No, he didn't come to lower this standard that is beyond our comprehension. He came to fulfill it. You know, he didn't come to answer this young man's question the way the Pharisees did. Well, do this and don't do that. Do this and don't do that. That's how the Pharisees would answer this this young man's question, what must I do to be good? But Jesus was like, no, I'm here to reveal something that's so much higher than goodness. Forget about goodness. Jesus said, I'm not just good. 
I am righteous. And um, in Matthew 5.17, he said, Do not think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And if you go down to verse 20, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, that must have been a real downer to these people because the scribes and Pharisees spent all day trying to be righteous by telling people, here's what you do to be good. Here's what you do to be good. And he said, oh, it has to far surpass that. So you understand now how you need a revelation of what, what does this mean? Um, it, it's beyond goodness. And it's beyond anything that's been presented by scribes and Pharisees and do-gooders. <laughs> um, that in verse 48, he says, this is and still Matthew 5, Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, let me just give up now. Except that he has told us there is a way to receive righteousness. See, this Sermon on the Mount where Jesus reveals what righteousness looks like, and feels like, and talks like, and walks like, it's not a stepladder of how to attain righteousness. I think many people take the Sermon on the Mount and it's a beautiful literary piece, but it's also very, it causes us to go, oy vey, who could ever do that, right? And if you read through it, just... It's not a stepladder of, okay, I've got to work on my uh, judgment today. I've got to work on this part today, you know. Um, it becomes a very heavy burden to try to fulfill everything in the Sermon on the Mount. That's, that's not what it is at all. It's not a manual for becoming good or righteous. It is not a stepladder for finally getting there someday. What it is is an x-ray of what true righteousness is like. This is Jesus living in you. This is his character. As he just begins to say, here's what righteousness looks like and walks like and talks like, this is who Jesus is. That's the God-like righteousness that only God possesses. Does that make sense? And so by from faith to faith, he says, I'm working this kind of righteousness in you. When you invite me in and you let me live in you, and make me, Lord, I'm going to work this kind of righteousness in you. See, righteousness is something that can only be given. It is ascribed. You're convicted, you repent, righteousness is given. The wages of sin is death. Wages is something you earn. But the gift of God, of God is eternal life. A gift is something you can only receive, which you have to be humble enough to receive it. That's where some people trip on this because they want to earn it. They want to somehow perform and say, but I want to do this myself. I want to get there. I want to please God. Forget it. You never can. It can only be received. And so that takes humility to say, God, you are, your righteousness is something I can't even imagine and yet you require me to be perfect it says it right there you require me to match your righteousness i can't do that 
then I must be able to simply receive it by faith and believe that when you tell me you've given me your righteousness, even though I may not feel that way, what you say about me is true. Amen? Um, Matthew 5.3, Jesus told us the secret of where to start. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I like to re-translate this or paraphrase it. Blessed are those who know their need. If you know, oh God, you expect me to be perfect? I can't ever do that. Blessed are you. If you know, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, forget that. I I can't ever live up to, to this measure. Then you know your need. So you're blessed if you know you fall short. If you think, oh, I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll just attain it, I'll just perform, I'll just work, I'll please God, you're not blessed. So if you feel poor in spirit, you feel a little bit defeated right now, as you hear me say, this is how much God expects of you, good. Blessed are you if you know your need. Amen? One of the people who didn't have the Bible, he didn't know about the cross, he didn't have any of the things we have, was Abraham, right? He didn't have all the tools we have at our disposal to understand biblically what God, who God is and what God wants. But in Romans 4.3 it says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Abraham simply believed that what God said was true, not how he felt, not what he thought, not what his culture said or thought, because he came from a culture of idolatry, didn't he? He simply believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And that word is not in the Bible by mistake. No word is by mistake. But that word, reckoned, is there very specifically because reckoned is a mathematical. It's reckoning. It's counting. And so it's when God is counting, he counted him as righteous. This is really key to us, guys, because we all keep score. Whether we think we do or not, we keep score of how we think we're doing. And we have days where we think, I'm I'm doing pretty well. You know, I think I've been overcoming some of my little demons and sins and habits, and I think I'm just doing pretty well with God, and we're feeling pretty good Christians. Then we go through a dry spell. We go through a time where crisis is happening and our faith doesn't seem to be rising to it. And uh, we just think, oh, I'm just a lousy Christian. You know, God must be disappointed in me. God must be upset with me. Amen? So when you reckon, when you have your score, it kind of goes up and down. And uh, you kind of walk around looking at others and saying, wow, I wish I had an A like David Nutter back there. Wish I had an A plus like his wife Susan. <laughs> you know, I've, I've got, I think I've got about a B minus right now, but I'm I'm working toward a B plus. You know, we're always just sort of in our minds somehow keeping a score of how we're doing. And what God says when you realize there's only one standard of righteousness, then you can understand that God says, forget your score, or in other words, I'll tell you what your score is. It's zero. 
your score is zero. There aren't any scores. There's two scores. There's zero and there's 100. And there's nothing in between. So if you've been at a 72 working towards an 80, forget it. Forget it. God doesn't recognize any scores. He recognizes only zero and 100. (gasps) Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Um, And he says, if you will humbly receive it, you zero, I will give you the score of my son, 100. If you humbly will be willing to stop counting your score and stop making that the standard of who you are, wipe that away and just say, I'm a humble zero and there's nothing I can do about it, then he will, he will willingly give you the score of his son and you suddenly become a 100. Is that good news or what? The Lord is looking to you, to your, your, your grace, your perfection. Or we'll, let me say this again. When we say, Lord, I'm looking to you, I'm looking to your grace, I'm looking to your perfection, not my own self-righteousness, then God says, that's a man after my own heart. That's a woman after my heart. Romans 3, let's turn over there for a minute. Romans 3. Are you getting anything out of this? Okay. Romans 3, verse 20, and a few verses following. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith. This is being repeated, isn't it? In Jesus Christ, for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned, have a zero, and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins of those previously committed. That's another whole thing. It's about how the blood, as last week we talked about, goes backwards and forward. That the cross saved everyone back to Adam all the way forward. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, that he may be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Could it be any clearer than that? No one is justified by keeping any law. This isn't just talking about the law of Moses. We all have laws. There's the law of Moses, but then there's the law of the assemblies of God. There's the law of the Amish. (laughs) There's the law of the evangelicals. There's the law of any religious group. And they all have their creeds and their codes. And if you do this and this and this, you're in. And if you don't do this, then you're out. We have the laws of our family. 
the family you grew up in, you guys, you have your code. And you knew when you were in or when you were out. Amen? You knew when you were measuring up and when you weren't. So we carry around with us this little creed, our, our law, whatever we live by, that makes you say, I'm doing all right or I'm not doing all right. So he says here, we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of any law. So you have to be willing to cast your law aside and say, that doesn't matter to God. That's not how he measures me. I have put into place a law that I thought was God's law, and actually it's something that was made up, something that was cobbled together through my family and through my experiences and through my life and through my spiritual training, and it got cobbled together, and it told me, okay, you're all right if you're doing this, but you're not. We need to cast that aside. Apart from the law, this righteousness is revealed. It's made known by the Holy Spirit. It's the very righteousness of God, far above our concept of what it even is. It's a mystery. We'll never comprehend what he has given us. It comes only through God's mercy and grace, and it's imparted to us, and it has to be received as a gift by faith. I would urge you to go back and read these verses again, Romans 3, 20 through 28, and just say, Lord, show me where in my heart I have built a law that I've been working so hard to keep that was cobbled together that has nothing to do with your righteousness, which is so far above my law. And I want to be free from that law that I've been working so hard to keep. Amen? Because it, it's, I mean, it's just something that's so prevalent in the church. Don't feel bad. <laughs> it's almost everyone that has to go through this process of recognizing, oh, my law is no good. It's worthless. Because it's God's way or no way. And he's told us what his way is. Trying to achieve, let me put it this way, trying to achieve righteousness on your own by keeping a set of rules means you're struggling to be something the Bible says you cannot. It makes you one of two things, a Pharisee or a failure. Often the both on the same day. <laughs> yep, because it's up and down, up and down, depending on how you think you're doing. But you want to know who God says you are? In 1 Corinthians 5.21, this would be one for you to mark down and go back and meditate on too. 1 Corinthians 5.21, one of my favorite scriptures in... <clears throat> Oh, I'm sorry, second. That's why I wasn't finding it in. Thank you, because it's on your notes, right? Amen. Second Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin, he who had a 100, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. A total exchange. His 100 for your zero. And this is about identity. This is about identity. It doesn't just say, um, he, he washed your sins away, but you're still you. He says, he made, he made him who knew no sin to come and be sin. Jesus took on the identity of someone his father would have to pour his wrath out upon. 
He took that identity on himself, and then he gave you his identity. That you, we might become the righteousness of God. That's about identity. Right? So don't call yourself a sinner. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. I think that's an insult. I am the righteousness of God. He gave me righteousness. That's supposed to be my identity. And we so much more often identify with our sins and our weaknesses than we do with righteousness. And that is, that's just dishonoring God. That's mocking the cross in some ways. You know? Um, it takes our joy. It takes our testimony. Because we're focused on who? Ourselves and our weaknesses and our sins instead of the glorious gift he has given us. Amen? Now, I use this. I was so blessed when I went home and I opened the right box and I found it immediately. So I knew God was blessing me and bringing it. You all know what this is. It's a Jewish prayer shawl, right? And there's all kinds of things built into it that are symbolisms that teach us things. And these, these um, strings on this, in the end, they're called tzitzit. In Hebrew, they're called tzitzit. And they have knots tied in them. And because the Jewish system doesn't have any numbers, but different letters have numeric value, when you add up the nu- nu- numbers in the words tzitzit, and you, it, it comes to 613. Just long story short, it comes to 613. Anybody want to guess how many laws there are in the Law of Moses? 613. So one of the symbolisms that's built into this is that when a Jewish man would go to approach God, he couldn't come in his own righteousness because he was unworthy. So he would have to cover himself with the righteousness of God. This is a symbolism of the prayer shawl, that it was as though he had kept all 613 laws perfectly when he was covered with this. And at the moment... We come to realize that our righteousness comes from the blood and the gift of Jesus, his gift to us. Then he covers us in his righteousness, and that's where we remain. And can I, do I have a volunteer? Can I put this on somebody? Can I put it on you, Linda? You look like you're like, yeah. Okay. This is what happens to a believer. Can I just put this right over you? Okay, I've got to get my little thingy out of the way. So here's what God does. He says, Linda, you know, I know you. I know every hair on your head. I know everything about you. I know you still have some sins in here. I know you still have some stuff to work on. I know we still have some healing to do. I know there's still some things that are a mess that are bothering you. We'll get to that. But when I look at you, What I see is the righteousness of my son. When I look at you, that's all I see. You are covered in my righteousness. Now that stuff, yeah, it'll take us some years. We'll work on that, but don't worry about it because you've received my righteousness. You see that picture? Isn't that beautiful? Maybe somebody else wants to try it on. Just pass it to somebody else. I love to demonstrate with that because um, when, you, when you take that righteousness and you put it on, you put it on, then you can say to yourself, you can say to the devil, you can say to anyone, I know I still miss the mark sometimes. I know I still sin sometimes. 
But I am righteous because God has covered me in his own righteousness. And I accept that as my permanent identity before him. And my righteousness doesn't change from day to day. I am righteous not someday, but now. Amen? So that means when you take it on, do you realize that means you're as righteous as you're ever going to be? You can't get any more righteous than that. Being covered in his own righteousness, how can you improve upon that? I'm as righteous today as I'm ever going to be. Woo-hoo! And God still has a bunch of junk to work on in me. But he'll, he'll do it. He'll do it much faster when we walk in righteousness than when we're so hung up on our sin. Much, it'll happen much faster. Okay? So now I want to get to the second part of this teaching and get on. I know Rick is looking at his watch, and we haven't even gotten to the second part. John 16, 7 through 11. <clears throat> this is Jesus trying to convince his disciples that it's good that he's going away, and they don't believe him. And he says in verse 7 of John 16, But I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper shall not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer behold me. And concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. Okay, so now we come to another word. The first word we talked about was righteousness, our conception of it. I think we cleared that up a little bit, right? Only God has righteousness. We got none. He gives us his. Now let's talk about the word convict. Convict. When I just say that word, it says the Holy Spirit will convict. When I just say that word convict or conviction, how do you, what's your response immediately, honestly? Is it a good word or a bad word? Bad word. Robert says bad word. Ooh, I don't like that word. Ooh, I'm under conviction. Ooh, squirm, squirm, right? Ooh, God's convicting me. Some, some of us don't have, but some of us have a very, don't like that, right? Well, maybe I need to blow that up too. Ready to have another concept blown up? Amen. Amen. Okay, how do we define convict? The the definition of convict is to impress the truth or to convince. Impress the truth or convince. That's what it says. The Holy Spirit will convince the world concerning sin and righteousness. The Holy Spirit will impress the truth concerning sin, impress the truth concerning righteousness, and impress the truth regarding the fact that the ruler of this world actually has been judged already. If he, needs, if he impresses the truth, what does the word say about the truth? You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Oh, so maybe it isn't a bad word. If it's something that the Holy Spirit does, and he does it to make us free, maybe after all it isn't a bad word. Aha. See, the Holy Spirit has to convict us that, yes, we, we, we have need. We have sin. He has to convict us because many of us went through life just doing what we wanted and we needed the Holy Spirit to come and say, hey, you're lost. You have sin. 
Then he had to convict, convict us that we can have God's righteousness right now. He has to show us that. He has to reveal it because it's mind-blowing. It's too far above us. Then he has to come and convict us. I've already destroyed the devil. You don't have to fight him. I already have because we feel like we're fighting him every day. And he's like, no, no, no. I've already destroyed him. Aren't those good things to be convinced of? Aren't those good things to be impressed upon you? Hmm. So maybe conviction isn't a bad thing after all. Especially if it's the Holy Spirit doing it, how can it be a bad thing? Right? So, again, we go back to our childhood, our upbringing, our spiritual. Maybe you, you got a very negative thing of, oh, being under conviction, not a good thing. But I am going to, um, I'm going to submit to you that you are mixing up what conviction is and what condemnation is. Because conviction is a very, very good thing. Condemnation is a very, very bad thing. And what I find after something like 120 mission trips and just all these opportunities God has given me to, to minister to Christians and work with them in small groups and larger groups and whatever, is that Christians are defeated, defeated more than anything else by condemnation. I find Christians trying to just keep their nose above water, trying to compensate, trying to wrestle with a constant feeling of accusation and condemnation. How much time in worship or in gatherings do you sit and still wrestle with yourself and with condemnation before you can break through into the presence of God? That was my story for years and years and years. Back in the 80s when the Praise and worship. Hosanna Integrity Music was just breaking out with all these wonderful new, you know, praise and worship songs. And worship was just taking on this new thing. There was a little church in Billings, Montana that I went to. It was a four-square church. Met in a house. And they were just doing the cutting-edge worship music. It was awesome. And I would go in there twice a week. I'd go on an evening service during the week and then Sunday. And the music would be going, and I'd be going, oh, I know God's upset with me. I know he's disappointed with me. God, I know you're mad at me. I know. And I would just, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I repent. I repent. Oh, God, I'm just not worthy to be here. And I just felt like God was standing up there going, oh, it's you again. (laughs) And all this worship would be going on, and I'd, oh, I'm just sorry, God. I know I'm just a worm. I know I'm nothing. And I'd just break through. And then the music would quit. And I'd be like, can we start all over? I just got there. Yes, because I was so much living under condemnation, I couldn't just go into the presence of God the way I was. I didn't know I was righteous and could just walk in there, whether I'd had a good day, a bad day, a good week, or a bad week. I felt condemned, and I listened to the voice of the accuser. And therefore, I couldn't just enter God's presence freely. So what I used to think was conviction, oh, God's convicting me. God's show- No, it was the accuser. We need to learn to discern between what is conviction, which is good, and a work of the Holy Spirit in your life, and condemnation, which is bad. And we need to learn to say yes to one. Please convict me, convince me, show me, set me free, Holy Spirit, and no. <laughs> I will not receive condemnation. We need to learn to do that. So to help you a little bit, um, 
I'm going to give you, I gave you a contrast on your, on your handout there, which we're going to look at. But first we're going to just read Romans 8, 1 and 2, in case I haven't hit the point strong enough yet. Deliver, uh, Romans 8, there is therefore now some condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What's wrong with my translation? There is therefore now, at the minute you receive that righteousness that God has imputed to you, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. His law is bigger than your law. Your law brought sin and death. Your law would never get you there. But his law says he who knew no sin became sin so he can be your atonement and be your righteousness. Right? It sets you free from your law. There is therefore now no condemnation. God does, That tells me that God doesn't want us to remain under condemnation for even one minute. When it comes, and it's going to come, it's going to come. Because Satan is relentless in accusing us. Forget about not ever feeling condemned. It will never stop until he gets thrown into the lake of fire. But we can learn to deal with it better, can't we? You know, in Revelation 12.10 it says that he goes, Satan goes before God day and night. He is called the accuser of the brethren. The accuser of our brethren has been thrown down who accuses them before our God day and night. It's his full-time job. He doesn't stop. So if you think, oh, because I, get, I feel accused, I'm a bad Christian. No, Satan's just doing his full-time job. That's all he does is accuse, accuse, accuse. And he, our flesh tends to agree with him. We tend to agree with him and believe that God is eager to condemn us um, we, and, and tell us we are unacceptable, we are unworthy, we're unqualified. But we just read in Romans, he doesn't want us to remain in condemnation for even one minute. Condemnation is not of God. Anytime you are feeling condemned, that is not God's voice. Do you hear me? That's not God's voice. When you are feeling condemned and accused, it is always the devil. The sweet voice of the Holy Spirit, convicting, now you want to hear that. So let's learn a little bit how to discern which is which. Because some of us have been responding to condemnation as if it's God. And we don't want to do that anymore. So let's, let's just kind of see what they, what they feel like and what they, how to recognize, how to discern. So conviction on your handout there means to impress the truth. First um, John 3:17 says, "He who practices righteousness is righteous." So one who is practicing righteousness, you know, I'm righteous. Now I got to practice it. I've got to live as if it's true. I got to walk it out. One who practices righteousness experiences conviction. A good thing. Condemnation means to decide against. That is one who does not know right but righteous that they are righteous. What just happened? Oh, that's right. <laughs> and they give place to condemnation. So number one under conviction, the message is always God is for you. He is your cheerleader. He wants to help you. He wants you to get from where you are to where he wants to take you. 
in condemnation, the message is God is against you. God is disappointed with you. God is mad at you. That's how I used to feel for years. If you're getting that thought, oh, I just, God, I just know God is upset with me. I just know God is mad at me. That is never the voice of God. That is the voice of condemnation. Amen? Number two, under conviction, conviction always pinpoints a specific sin or need. God doesn't just mess around with you like, I'm very disappointed with you, but you go home and figure out why. <laughs> he tells you, we've got to work on this. You know, we've got to work on this. You've been, you've been in this area. Maybe it's uh, gossip. Maybe it's uh, handling finances. You haven't been tithing or something. And he's like, you begin to feel this, the whole voice of the Holy Spirit saying, I want to work on this area in your life. It pinpoints specific, whereas condemnation is generalized. You just feel generally unworthy, unacceptable most of the time, unqualified. You know, like I'm just not a good Christian. But you don't know what to do about it. You don't know where to start. If you just feel that general yuck, that's the devil. But if you hear the Holy Spirit putting his finger on something specific, that's conviction. Number three, what happens is it brings you closer to Jesus. It makes you love him more because you're like, yes, Jesus, you understand my struggle. Yes, I keep doing that. Yes, Lord, help me with that. I don't want to keep doing that, but I do, so help me. It actually builds relationship like he's your friend. He's your personal trainer. He's coming along to say, I want to work with you on this. But Condemnation, number three, makes you feel like he has withdrawn. Makes you feel like he's abandoning you or he's punishing you or he's cursed you. Or he's just um, like he's just pulled back from you and said, we can't be close until you get your act together. Which is how I used to feel when I go into those worship services. I couldn't get close to him until I got my act together. That's a lie. No, he's my personal trainer. He's like, come on, Betty, we can do ten more. Come on, I know you want to get stronger. I know you want to, so I'm with you in this. I'm with you in the fight. Okay, number four, it may cause temporary sorrow, but there is joy involved. I think about that being like a deep tissue massage. <laughs> like, oh, that hurts so good. Do it some more. Ah, ouch, ouch. Oh, yes, that. You know, it, it may hurt when the Holy Spirit shows you something. You go, oh, Lord, I feel bad that I've done. But it's there's also joy like yeah that hurts good that's good I want to work on that area it needs work like a good massage but number four there's no joy involved there's just sorrow you know number five if you are continually practicing your righteousness and letting the Holy Spirit convict you day after day month after month you begin to see movement you begin to say see movement from glory to glory like well I'm still not perfect in this area, but I'm not like where I was six months ago. I can see there's been some change. Hallelujah. I'm not so bothered by that anymore as I used to be. I'm not so hung up on that as I used to be. I can actually see movement. But if you're living constantly under condemnation, letting the devil just beat on your head, trying to keep your nose above water as you listen to his lies all day, it paralyzes you. You can just stay stuck in the same place you've been for literally years. And I see that with dear, beloved Christians that they're just stuck. 
in the same place and feel like they'll hopefully they feel like they'll never make it. They're just hoping they can make it by a fingernail. You will not make progress under condemnation. Right? So that's why it's one of the enemy's greatest tricks. If he can't keep you from being saved, at least he can keep you from being um, effective in the kingdom. He can keep you from moving and growing to where you are a blessing to others. If he can't keep you from being saved, he'll try everything to keep you ineffective and he'll use condemnation as number one because that's where you can really get Christians because who is he? The accuser of the brethren. Okay, number six. This kind of goes together with it. It builds you up to be stronger than you were before. The more you receive God's conviction, the more you're feeling like, hey, I'm just not as vulnerable anymore. I'm not as pulled toward that sin anymore. I feel stronger in this. But condemnation, constant condemnation, will tear you down so that you get more and more discouraged with this Christian walk. And finally, number seven, it frees you to love God and love others and fulfill your call, whereas condemnation keeps you in bondage, separated from God's love, and ineffective in the kingdom. Where does Satan want us? Thinking about God and glorifying him all day and thinking about others? No, he wants us thinking about me, 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 me. So if I can just, if he can get me to just be in condemnation, all I'm going to think about all day is myself. He's got me where he wants me, right? You see, that's why it's such a tool against Christians. He can't maybe keep you from being saved, but he can keep you ineffective. He can keep you so you don't see the needs of anybody else, and all you think about all day is how bad you are. Proverbs 24:16 says, A righteous man falls seven times and rises again. Hallelujah. Righteousness doesn't mean we never stumble, we never fall, we never sin. It means we keep letting the Holy Spirit convict us and we keep getting back up again and practicing righteousness, 1 John 3, 7. And that's why he loved King David because King David failed and, and sinned grievously. But when Nathan the prophet came to him, he received the conviction of the Holy Spirit. He was convicted. He repented and he just kept on getting back to, to his call. Amen? So... Um, you have to believe it's true. You have to begin to act as though it's true. Agree with what God says, not the world and the devil in your head. So I'm going to go back to where I started. Righteousness is where we begin. It's from a position of righteousness we deal with our healing and with our sin. Don't deal with your sin to get righteous. Amen? Romans 5, I'm going to read this scripture, and that's where I'm going to end. Romans 5, 6 through 9. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. We were a sinner. That used to be your identity. But the blood of Jesus has made you righteous. As soon as you see that and receive it, it's done. And you're as righteous as you ever can be. But all of this is a great mystery and it must be appropriated by faith. 
unless you apply faith to what you've heard tonight, it will not profit you. So, Lord, I just pray that these wonderful words that you gave us in your scripture, these wonderful truths would penetrate our hearts. Your word is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. It goes inside of us and it does a work in us. So I pray the word that we have spoken tonight will continue to work in my brothers and sisters and those working, watching at home. Your word will continue to work in us to separate us from the lies and bring us into the truth of your righteousness and your sweet conviction. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Am